0: as alaikum alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim in the Alhamdulillahi wa nahshkuroh. Wa nahstainu wa nahstaghfiroh wa nahstahdi. Wa nahuminu bihi wa nahawkaru alayhi wa nahawthu billahi min shurururu anfasna. Wa min seyyyat aamalina. Men yahdihillahu fala mudillah. Wa men yudhililhu fala haadiyah. Wa nahshadu wa la ilaha illallahu wa hdhu wa nahawla sharikala. وَنَشَهِدُ أَنَّ مُحَمَّدًا عَبْدُهُ وَرَسُولُهُ أَرْسَلَهُ بِالْحَقِّ بَشِيرًا وَنَذِيرًا بَيْنَ يَدَيْ السَّاعَةِ مَن يَتَّقِ اللَّهَ وَرَسُولَهُ فَقَدْ رَشَدَ وَمَن يَعْصَهُ فَقَدْ غَوَى حَتَّىٰ يَفِيءَ إِلَىٰ أَمْرِ اللَّهِ وَإِنَّهُ لَا يُصِرُّ إِلَّا نَفْسَهُ وَلَا يُضِلُّ اللَّهُ شَيْئًا وَقَالَ اللَّهُ عَزَّ مِنْ قائل أَعُوذُ بِاللَّهِ مِنَ الشَّيْطَانِ الرَّجِيمِ بِسْمِ اللَّهِ الرَّحْمَنِ الرَّحِيمِ <speaking> on, well, i̇şte. SMS, sub- in the law, who amallah, ikatahu, you saloon, alan, nebiya, amanu. So, alayhi was salimu slim. Allah, who was Muhammad, in wala, Ali Muhammad, kamasul later, Ibrahim, wala, Ali Ibrahim in the Khamid and Majid. Allah, Muhammad, in wala, Ali Muhammad, kamabarak, Allah, Ibrahim, wala, Ali Ibrahim in the Khamid Majid. Respect to, tongue, to, Rather, Abraham, to, to listeners, last month. On the last Friday of uh, the month, we completed a brief commentary of Surah Al-Ikhlaas, Qulahuallahu Ahad. Today, as promised, we will read and study the surah prior to that. Tabbat yada abhi laha Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says Tabatiada Abi lahum. Perish the hands of Abu Lahab and perished is he. maluhu wa ma kasab his wealth will not avail him and nor what he has acquired. the Narat Sayyasla Narandata Lahab. He shall soon enter a fire of flame. وَمْرَأَتُهُ al Hatab And his wife too. A carrier of firewood. فِي حَبْلٌ مِّنْ مسد. On her neck, a rope of palm fibre. <coughs> That's a literal translation of the verses of Surah Al-Lahab. Uh, Surah Al-Lahab. This is the fourth surah before the end of the Quran, coming just before Surat Qulhu Allahu Ahad, Suratul Falak, and Suratul Nas. And again, it's one of the most famous surahs of the Quran, one that many of us recite regularly in our prayers, both public and private. The surah has a number of names. Commonly it's known as Surah Tabbat Yada. It's also known as Surah Al-Lahab. Also Surah, Surah Abi Lahab. And there's a, there's a fourth name also, Surah Al-Masad. Taken from the last the, the last word of the Surah. "Fi جيدها hablum min Masad." Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Perish the hands of Abu Lahab. And he perished is he. He is perished till the end. As you can see, the whole surah discusses the family of Abu Lahab. Abu Lahab himself, his wife, and the fact that his wealth and his children will not save him in any way. وما Kasab, meaning what he has acquired, i.e. his wealth. I'll do a summary translation of the surah again, and then, inshallah, we'll discuss the whole background to the revelation of this surah and what it actually <coughs> refers to. So, yada abi lahab, Perish the hands of Abu Lahab. I.e., may he be destroyed. Often in the Quran and in, in actually in Arabic, in the Arabic language, like in other languages also, a part of the body is mentioned, but the whole is referred to. Just like in marriage, we say, uh, do you accept her hand in marriage? So, the hand refers to the person. And in Arabic, this is very common. A part of the body is used to refer to the entire body or the person, himself or herself. So, here also, Perish the hands of... Abu Lahab, meaning may Abu Lahab himself perish, may he be destroyed, he is doomed. The word is repeated, and he is perished. So Allah says at the beginning, May the hands of Abu Lahab perish, i.e. may he perish, and the word tab is repeated again, which means it doesn't actually mean and may he perish it doesn't say twice so the meaning isn't may Abu Lahab perish and may he perish it's not a simple repetition even though the word is actually repeated in Arabic, it's not a simple repetition, the first tab is a prayer it's A damnation. It's a curse upon Abu Lahab. And the second word, dub is not simply a repetition of that curse. Rather, it actually says as a statement of fact that indeed he has perished. Like in English, one could say, he is doomed. May he be doomed. In fact, he is doomed. And that's exactly what's being said here. Yada abi lahab wa tab. May Abu Lahab perish. In fact, he has perished. Because when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala curses someone, there's no waiting for a response. There's no expectation of when that curse will be accepted, when that prayer will be accepted by Allah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself is personally damning and cursing Abu Lahab. So Allah says, abi May Abu Lahab perish. In fact, he has perished. Ma anhu ma wa ma kasab. His wealth, وَمَا كَسَبْ And what he has acquired. Meaning his children. What he has acquired refers to his children. So مَا اَغْنَى عَنْهُ مَا وَمَا قصب, His wealth and his children will not avail him. أي, they will not save him. They will not protect him from the curse of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. From perishing, from being doomed and damned. From destruction. His wealth will not save him, his children will not save him, his family will not save him. Say Yaslanarandat lahab soon, very soon, he will enter a fire of flame. Now, of course, all flames, all fires have flames. So why specifically mention the word flame here? The, this is actually a subtle play on Abu Lahab's name. So Abu Lahab was not his actual name, that's his kunya, his technonym. His real name was Abdul Uzza, the <coughs> slave of the goddess Uzza. But he was very handsome and he had flaming red cheeks a very radiant complexion and appearance. So his nickname was Abu Lahab, the father of the flame. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has mentioned such words in the surah, which are a subtle play on his actual kunya, his technonym, his name. And there's more of this in the whole surah. It's only a surah of five verses, and yet, throughout, there is a subtle play and a comparison to the state of Abu Lahab and his wife in the world, and what will be their state in the hereafter. So, soon he will enter a fire of flame, just like his name is Abu Lahab, the father of the flame, because of his flaming red cheeks. But this won't be just a metaphor. He will enter a blazing, raging fire full of flames. ومرأته, and his wife also. Not just him, but his wife also. الحطب, she who is a carrier of firewood, مسد, on her neck is a rope or should we say a halter of palm fiber what does that mean imagine a wood carrier they normally have a halter a kind of sack or similar cloth which is tied around their necks and hangs here on which they in which they fill the firewood or other material and that is a halter now the, in, in Makkah and its surrounding areas in Arabia because one of the most famous uh, trees was the palm tree and they would use every part of the palm tree the fibres of the palm tree were very strong and they would actually entwine these fibres and make ropes and cords out of them So even these halters, which they would hang around their neck for carrying purposes, would be made from the palm fibre. So Allah is simply describing uh, a normal wood carrier as was seen and known to the Arabs. Uh, And how would they be? Uh, Someone carrying wood in a halter hung around their neck. And that halter would be made of palm fibre. So Allah is simply sketching and depicting and drawing a picture of a typical wood carrier. And then that image of a wood carrier with a halter around her neck of palm fibre, Allah ascribes to Abu Lahab's wife. So when and his wife too, she will enter the fire, a flaming fire. She who is a carrier of firewood with a rope or a halter around her neck, made of palm fibre. Now that's a slightly elaborated translation of the surah. Now let's consider the actual meaning. As you can see, the whole surah is a curse, a damnation, and a, a very strong rebuke and censure of Abu Lahab. Who was Abu Lahab? And why does this surah speak so strongly of Abu Lahab? Undoubtedly it can be seen that he is someone whom Allah curses and damns and promises eternal damnation to. What brought this about? And another interesting thing. This shows undoubtedly he was an enemy of the Prophet ﷺ. But another interesting thing. Throughout the Qur'an, one of the unique features of the Qur'an is that the Qur'an normally does not go into individual specific details. That's the unique style of the Qur'an. The Qur'an doesn't read like a normal book. And as a result of this unique style, many have misunderstood the purpose and the style, as well as the literary style of the Qur'an. The Prophet is mentioned very few times by name, considering that he is a messenger of Allah. The names of women aren't mentioned. Maryam ﷺ is mentioned, but again for a specific reason not a single companion of the Prophet is mentioned, with the exception of Zayd ibn Harithah, عنه, the at one time adopted son of the Messenger Apart from him, no one else from the family or of the companions of the Prophet is mentioned by name in the Qur'an. And when Zayd is mentioned, he is mentioned for a specific reason. The same goes to the enemies of the Prophet ﷺ. The many enemies are referred to. And فرأيت مَنِ اتَّخَذَ إلهه هَوَاهَاً وَمِنَ النَّاسِ مَنْ يُعْجِبُكَ قَوْلُهُ فِي الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا وَيَشْهَدُ اللَّهَ عَلَى مَا فِي قَلْبِهِ وَهَوَ أَلَدُّ الْخِصَامِ These are just some of the verses which the ulema say refer to specific individuals from the enemies and the hypocrites. وَإِذَا رَأَيْتُهُمْ تُعْجِبُكَ from المنافقون but throughout the Quran, even when the enemies are being referred to, they are not named. Sometimes their deeds are mentioned, or some sign is mentioned, or their statements and words are simply quoted, but they are not mentioned by name of the the enemies of the Prophet sallallahu with the exception of Abu Lahab. Why was Abu Lahab mentioned by name in this surah? So that's something else to consider. So who was Abu Lahab and why was he mentioned by name with an individual identity? Abu Lahab was the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ. His father Abdullah's half-brother. But the fact that he was a half-brother should not... Uh, Lessen or dampen his connection with the Messenger وسلم, in our view because uh, Abu Abdul Muttalib, the grandfather, the grandfather of the Prophet, وسلم, had a number of wives and many children, and many of them were from different mothers. So, only some of them, coincidentally, uh, Abu Lahab was alone, he had no uh, full brother or sister. He was the only child of his mother. But on the other hand, Hamza was also the half-brother of the Prophet's father, Abdullah. He wasn't a full-brother. So Safiya, the auntie of the Prophet again, was a half-sister. To the Prophet Hamza and Safiyyah were full brothers and sisters from one mother. So many of the uncles and aunts were all half brothers and half sisters to each other. So the fact that Abu Lahab wasn't a full uncle uh, shouldn't lessen his relationship with the Prophet وسلم, in our view according to current understanding because our understanding is oh if someone's uh, only a half brother or half sister then their connection or relationship with the family is probably not as so strong as those who are full brothers and sisters but amongst the arabs this was never a case uh, this was never the case because uh, m- on many occasions most of the family uh, were half most members of the family were half brothers and half sisters to each other so abu lahab was the half-brother of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi father, but he was uh, one of the blood uncles of the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, one of the sons of Abdul Muttalib. Abu Lahab's original name wasn't Abu Lahab, his name was Abdul Uzza, the servant of uh, the goddess Uzza. And his kunya, his technonym, uh, the name given to him... Uh, as father, was father of the flame. And as I mentioned, it was uh, owing to his flaming red cheeks and his radiant complexion. So this was a title of honor, actually. Uh, The Arabs, uh, this wasn't a disparaging or pejorative name. It was actually A name of honor, Abu Lahab. And that's what he was most famous for. Not many people knew him as Abdul Uzzah. They referred to him as Abu Lahab. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has uh, used the same name in the Qur'an. But another twist is Allah has deliberately refrained from using his original name, which is Abdul Uzzah, the slave of Uzzah, in order to avoid any connotation of shirk. So, Abdul Uzza, the servant of, or the slave of Al the goddess, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has uh, ensured that that name is not mentioned at all, even though that was his original name. Now, Abu Lahab, despite being an uncle of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he opposed the Messenger alayhi salatu wa sallam along with his wife. And his wife, her name was Arwa. Her kunya, her technical name was Ummu Jameel. She was more famously known as Ummu Jameel. So this was Abu Lahab and his wife, Ummu Jameel. And Ummu Jameel was the sister of Abu Sufyan. And these details are important. Now, Abu Lahab was from the family of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam and it was expected of him to help and support the prophet sallallahu and not only to help and support but to believe in him but he chose to oppose the messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam and not only disbelieve in him but oppose him ridicule him harass him and actually join his foes against him being a close family member meant that he had a greater responsibility of helping and supporting the prophet sallallahu but when he chose to oppose him this was considered so evil by allah and his rasul sallallahu that allah mentioned him by name in the quran and damned him for all eternity and there is, a, there is some background to this the abu lahab's opposition to the prophet sallallahu Continued before the revelation of these verses, as well as after. And some instances of his opposition are, one, when the Prophet was commanded by Allah to announce the religion openly, because initially, when in the 40th year of his life, he received the revelation from Allah, and he, w- he was given prophethood, the Prophet ﷺ only proclaimed his prophethood and his message to the closest members of the family. And so the ones to believe in him were Umm al-Mu'mineen Khadijah radiallahu anha, Sayyidina Ali radiallahu anha, Zayd ibn Haritha, his at that time adopted son, uh, etc. And Abu Bakr radiallahu anha, one of his close, his best friend, And so on. But... Short time after that, Allah Azza wa Jal commanded him to declare the message openly, and approximately this was about in the third year of prophethood, in the 43rd year of his life. When the Prophet was commanded to do so, he did it in the following manner. Now, in order to understand it, uh, understand the scene and the actual incident. Again, a bit of background to the tradition of the Arabs. When the Arabs wanted to announce or declare something important or even urgent, their manner of doing it was that normally this was done when they feared an attack. Like in some cultures, some lands of history, they would light fires, they would have watchtowers etc., to be forewarned of danger. The way the Arabs, in Makkah al-Muqarramah, warned each other of any impending danger is that they would climb up to one of the hills, uh, or the small mountains, or the hillocks surrounding the valley of Makkah, and from there they would normally take uh, their clothes, they would rend their clothes and then wave them and shout continuously. Uh, from a high vantage point, so the Prophet ﷺ did the same. He climbed up the hill of Safa, the hillock of Safa, the one that we uh, do sa'i and run between that and Marwa. So he climbed on the hillock of Safa, and being close to the courtyard of the Kaaba, he began shouting, "The oh, Quraysh," and he began naming the different clans of the Quraysh. Hashim, Adi, and so on. So the clans all began to gather. As far as his voice would carry and people heard him, people began to gather in order to listen to him, because this was only done on rare occasions. Those who couldn't actually go to the hill of Safa, they sent others that quickly go and check what's going on. Uh, a call of emergency is being made. So it was actually an emergency call. When the people had gathered in a very large number, the Prophet wasallam said to them, "O Quraysh, if I said to you that I can see from behind this hill an approaching army who will attack you tomorrow morning or evening. Will you believe and trust me or will you belie and reject me? So in one voice they said, of course we will believe you. qat. We have never experienced you lying ever. We know of no lie ascribed to you. So the Prophet gave them this introduction first. Because that's where and when and how calls of emergency or declarations of emergency were being made. So he gathered them and he said, Oh Quraysh, if I announce to you that I can see an approaching army from behind these hills, which will attack you tomorrow morning or evening, will you believe me or will you reject me? And of course we will believe you. We have never known you to lie. So the Prophet ﷺ then said, In that case, I am warning you of a great punishment that will soon come. I believe in me. I am the messenger of Allah. Believe in me. If you refuse to do so, then I warn you of a dire punishment and of dire consequences. No one said anything. Of all the people, his own uncle Abu Lahab spoke up. And he said, is this why you have gathered us here? Is this all? May you be doomed and damned all day long. And then he actually bent down and picked up some pebbles to throw at the Prophet although he didn't actually throw them. It was after that incident that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed uh, Surah Abi Lahab. And again, like I said, the whole of Suratul Lahab is a subtle play and a reflection of the words, the names, the identities, and the behaviour of Abu Lahab and his family in the dunya, as reflected in the hereafter. So he said to the Prophet, May you be doomed and damned all day long. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in response said, Nay. Not the Prophet وسلم, be doomed or damned. Tabbat yada Abi Lahab, may Abu Lahab perish. May Abu Lahab be doomed. And then Allah adds, Wattab, and indeed he has perished. To give you another example of the opposition of Abu Lahab to the Prophet. We learn from various narrations that the Prophet sallallahu Remember, all of this history is of Mukhtamukarrama. The Prophet sallallahu alaihi would leave no stone unturned, spare no effort in inviting people to the religion of Islam. As part of that effort, he would visit the market fairs, which were special occasions when the Arabs would gather from all over Arabia uh, at these huge fairs. And they would only last for a couple of days. And there was great festivity and celebration, feeding and drinking, and poetry and competitions and trade. But these fairs would only last for a few days. And there were many of them scattered throughout Arabia. One of the most famous of them was Uqal. But there were others as well. For instance, there was one known as dhul so at the fair of dhul this is one incident, but Abu, the Prophet wasallam would do this whenever possible and wherever possible. And Abu Lahab would not be far behind. But this hadith actually describes in great detail what the Prophet wasallam used to do in the words of a companion who remembers seeing him from that time and then he related the whole incident in Medina. And the hadith is well known. It's related by Muhammad Muhammad and Muslim and by others. The companion, radiyallahu anhu, says, I remember when I was very young, I visited the markets fair of Dhul-Majaz with my father. And I saw a young man, well, a young in the sense middle-aged, and I saw a man walking amongst the people and amongst the crowds and telling them, That, oh people, believe in me, you shall be saved. Believe in me, you will succeed. Some would listen to him and then walk away. Others would ignore him. Some would listen to him attentively. But whenever he would walk and visit a group of people and address them, not far behind, there would be another man walking, actually throwing pebbles at him. And... When, the prophets, when, sorry, when this man would speak to a group of people and say what he had to, and then move on, the other man would come to the same group of people and say to them, ignore him, he's, uh, he's one of our people, he's a madman, we have actually tried treating him, but uh, no medicine and no cure seem to work for him. So ignore him, he's a shame and an embarrassment to our clan. And he would actually throw pebbles. So the companion, of the who says that, I remember as a very young man at that time, I said to my father, who is this? And what is he saying? And who is this following him? So he said, this is Muhammad, the son of Abdullah, who claims to be a messenger of Allah. And that behind him is his uncle, Abu Lahab. And Abu Lahab actually continued to do this at different fairs, even during the hajj. So even in Mina, during the Hajj, he would do the same with the Prophet Again, to give you another example of his deep opposition to the Messenger in the seventh year of prophethood, in the forty-seventh year of the Prophet life, approximately, the Quraysh decided to boycott the clan of Hashim, Banu Hashim and they declared this boycott the whole Banu Hashim community was to be isolated and excommunicated, ostracised now again in order to understand what this meant we need a bit of background and history in Makkah as well as throughout Arabia, there was no law, there was no central authority, there was no government, there was no security. Family meant everything. One's family was one's security, one's police, one's army, one's kin, one's blood, one's clan, one's protection, one's welfare. There was no concept of a nation per se. There was no concept of a state. There was no concept of a nation state. Today, in today's climate and uh, today's context, an individual can choose to remain an individual. So, If a person wants to move away from their family, they do so. Without any serious consequences. They just live their own life. Their food, their drink, their welfare, their well-being, their security, their protection. All of these things are taken care of by different uh, sectors, different departments, and different aspects of the nation-state. But in Arabia... There was no concept of central government, central authority, nation, state, nation-state, nothing. Security, police force, army, nothing. Everything depended on the family. And that's why an individual couldn't survive as an individual. So, the way the whole system worked, the way the whole society was structured, is that you had the individual... ...who had the immediate family. His brothers, his sisters... ...his spouse... ...his children... ...his parents and his in-laws. That was the immediate ashira, the immediate family. But the family itself couldn't do anything. If ten families got together and attacked a single family... ...they would wipe them out. So what protection was there for that one family... Their protection was the collection of their related families and their clan. And then that clan, each clan would not be able to survive by itself. But the, the, clan would, the clans would come together as part of a tribe, a small tribe. And then the small tribes would come together as part of a super tribe. And that's how they actually lived. So, this was the balance of power throughout Mecca, Medina, and not just Mecca and Medina, but the whole of Arabia. These are very important points. The reason being, you can't actually understand the seerah or what, what happened in Mecca and Medina without understanding these dynamics of a tribal society. Why were tribes so important? Why were the Arabs so particular? About lineage and blood. Where everything mattered. So, where, sorry, where the lineage and the name and the blood and the clan and tribe. Where these things really mattered. The reason is, for them, the family, the clan, the tribe was everything. That was their nation. That was their army. That was their security. That was their state. That was their law. That was their government. That was their authority. Without family kin and clan, an individual would be extremely vulnerable, like a lamb in a pack of wolves. In the 47th year of the Prophet sallallahu life, the Quraysh decided to boycott Banu Hashim. Why? Again, the reason was kin, clan and family. When the Prophet sallallahu declared prophethood and Three years later, he announced Prophethood publicly, approximately three years later. And people began, began embracing Islam. This also explains a very common question. Surely people ask, as I used to ask myself when I was a child, and I used to read the stories of the Sahaba, عنهم, and their persecution in Mecca. I used to always ask myself, as a very small child, why didn't the Prophet sallallahu wasallam And Abu Bakr and Umar, radiyallahu anham, and the more senior companions, why didn't they protect Bilal, radiyallahu Ammar ibn Yasir, radiyallahu his father Yasir, his mother Sumiyyah, and the others. Why was it that there was a division? Some of the people in Mecca who were tortured and even killed, martyred like Sumiyyah, radiyallahu anha. And yet others, like Abu Bakr and Umar عنهما, they suffered no physical persecution per se. Abu Bakr did. Someone like Umar and Hamza r.a didn't. And apart from the inconvenience, etc., the Prophet wasn't attacked per se. Abu Bakr was. So... In order to understand the answer, this is it. The answer lies in the dynamics of the tribal society and relationship. People wouldn't attack, or persecute, or torture some of the Sahaba عنهم, even though they were individuals, simply because an attack on that one individual meant an attack on their family. The family would come together. That family, if they came together, word and bond meant everything to the Arabs. So, if an Arab said to someone, "I grant you protection," they would defend the person to whom they had granted protection till they died, unless they renounced their protection. So, people would actually go around looking for protection. The Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, in the 50th year of his life and the 10th year of prophethood, three years before Hijrah. Why did he go to Ta'if? He actually went to Ta'if to seek the protection of the tribe of Thaqif, Because his uncle Abu Talib had passed away. So, and with the passing away of Abu Talib, the protection of Banu Hashim no longer existed. Because leadership of Banu Hashim passed from Abu Talib to, who of all people, Abu Laab. So the Prophet wasallam had to go elsewhere to seek protection. And this is the same with Abu Bakr, you may recall the story where he left Makkah al-Mukarramah. And someone met him on the road and said, where are you going? And he said, I'm leaving Makkah. And he said, well, Makkah would be a poorer place without you. In every way. So Abu Bakr radiallahu said that, uh, who will protect me? So even though the one who met him was a pagan, he said to him, I grant you protection. And he brought him back to Makkah, and he announced in the courtyard of the Kaaba, that I grant protection to Abu Bakr. So if one person granted protection to an individual, that meant they had the protection of that individual. If the one who was protected was attacked... That meant an attack on the protector and the guarantor. An attack on the guarantor as an individual meant facing the whole family. And they would rise. They, wouldn't, they were not, subhanAllah, in this day and age, everyone's um, every person for themselves. But no, the Arabs, regardless, they would rise in protection for each other. The family would stand for one individual. And the clan would then stand for that family and that the other clans of the same sub-tribe would stand for that one clan. Because of this balance of power, each attack would mean an endless series of consequences, a chain reaction. This is why the pagans resisted. It was only because of this balance of power and these tribal dynamics. Where a clan was extremely weak, or a family was weak, and they never had the protection of other clans, then, like savages, they went for them. Torturing them, murdering them in Makkah al Mukarramah. So, in the case of the Prophet when he announced his prophethood, and he spoke about oneness and tawheed and monotheism, the Quraysh... They didn't approach the Prophet directly. Of course, they did, but Prophet told them that these are my beliefs, and this is what I am calling you to. And when they realised that they couldn't turn the Messenger they couldn't convince him to stop his da'wah and his call, they approached the chief of his clan, and who was the chief of Banu Hashim at that time? The chief of Banu Hashim was Abu Talib, his uncle. Now, who was Ibn Hashim? Again, it's so all very. The Prophet's father was Abdullah, Abdullah's father was Abdul Muttalib, and Abdul Muttalib's father was Hashim. And Hashim's father was Abdul Manaf. And Abdul Manaf had a number of sons, four of them were most famous. So, Abdul Manaf, one of the sons was Hashim. The other son of Abd manaf was Muttalib. Another son of Abd manaf was nawfal And another son of Abd manaf was Abd shams So these were four brothers. Hashim, Muttalib, Naufel, and Abd shams And the children of Hashim, all of the children of Hashim, well actually it was only Abd al-Muttalib. Abd muttalib was the only son of Hashim. But Abd Abdul Muttalib had many sons. So the whole family of the children and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren of Hashim were known as Banul Hashim. The children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren of uh, Muttalib were known as the Banul Muttalib, the clan of Muttalib. And the same for Naufal and the same for Abd al-Shams. Umayyah, the famous enemy, infamous enemy. Uh, Utbah. Sorry, Rutbah, Rabi'a, Sakhra, the father of Abu Sufyan, Abu Sufyan himself, Hind, all of these were from the Banu Abd Shams, the Abd Shams clan, and they had a subdivision called the Umayyah. So all the Umayyads were from uh, Abd Shams. Now, th- this is important because what actually happened? They, the whole of the Quraysh, approached the chief of Banu Hashim, who. Abu Talib, and they said to him, Look, stop your son from saying what he says. Abu Talib spoke to the Prophet. ﷺ. Prophet ﷺ told him, That oh, uncle, as is reported, if they were to place the sun in my right hand and the moon in my left hand, and burden me with these two bodies, and then say to me that under the torture and the weight of these two bodies, I should leave my call to Allah, I will still not do so. So Abu Talib, realising the conviction and the firmness and the steadfastness of his nephew, said to him, oh my uh, son, do what you have to. No one will harm you. That meant the protection of his uncle. He was already protected, but despite telling him that I won't desist, his uncle Abu Talib said to him, No matter what you do, you have our protection. Since the Prophet ﷺ was from the clan of Banu Hashim, he had no brothers, no sisters, and no father. But he had the protection of his uncle, who was the chief of the whole clan. That meant that even though the others didn't believe in him, including Abu Talib and the children of Abu Talib, with the exception of Sayyidina Ali r.a at that early stage, Everyone stood by the member of their family. So, in fact, the, uh, uh, we learn from the narrations that over time, his, his cousins, some of them who were pagans, would still defend the Prophet house. So, when Abu Talib was approached, and Abu Talib then said, look, I refuse to stop him. Let him continue to do what he does they repeatedly approached Abu Talib. Uh, and then finally, in the 47th year of Hijrah, uh, sorry, in the 47th year of the Prophet his life, and the 7th year of Prophethood, they approached Abu Talib again with an ultimatum. And they said to him, we want you to either stop Muhammad, or we want you to renounce your protection. Because you can't have both. You can't say that you won't stop Muhammad, and at the same time, Say to us that he has my protection so that he can do what he wants, continue to insult our gods. Otherwise, if we attack him, then you will defend him and we will have to face you. We can't do it. We can't have both. So we give you an ultimatum. You either stop Muhammad once and for all, or you renounce his protection and then leave him to us and hand him over to us so that we deal with him. And if you choose not to, if you decide not to hand him over or to stop him, then... We, the whole of Quraysh, will make an enemy of the whole of Banu Hashim. So that's what they did. The Prophet ﷺ refused to desist from his call. Abu Talib continued with the protection of the Prophet ﷺ. And because of Abu Talib, the whole clan of Banu Hashim remained with him. In protecting the Prophet sallallahu When the Quraysh announced their boycott. They said, no one in Mecca will trade with the clan of Hashim. That we will not intermarry. We will not protect them. We will not trade with them. We will not exchange gifts with them. We will not help or support them. We will not even provide food and drink for them. They will be ostracized. They will be excommunicated, isolated. They are not others. We won't even speak to them. They actually, and the clans got together, and they ratified this, and created a document which they hung in the Gaba As a sacred note. And the boycott of Bunu Hashim began. It wasn't, a, uh, it wasn't a small affair. We learn that during that time, Despite the wails and the cries of children, food would be restricted from reaching banu hashim And all of banu hashim came together in the small ravine or valley of Abu Talib. It wasn't a valley, but just a ravine of Abu Talib, where his house was. That whole area became a refugee ground, a refugee camp for the whole of banu hashim Some of them, too quench their thirst and to satiate themselves or to protect themselves from the pains and the pangs of hunger, they would actually chew on leather. And this continued for over two years, almost three years. When Abu Talib realised that my clan has being boycotted, he made an announcement, he made an appeal to the other clans as would normally happen. So who did he appeal to First. Well, this was a clan of Hashim, the descendants of Hashim. So he appealed to the brothers of Hashim, i.e. the descendants of the brothers of Hashim. So Hashim's brothers were Nofel, Muttalib, and Abd al-Shams, of course. They had all uh, died long ago. But he appealed to their clans and their descendants. So he appealed to naufal saying, Look, you are the... Um, you are the descendants of my grandfather of my grandfather's brother so supporters and join us he approached noful the clan of noful the clan of noful again despite being mostly pagan they sided with banu hashim but the other two clans of the brothers Banu Muttalib, sorry, uh, uh, not Banu al-Nawfal, Banu Muttalib joined Banu Hashim. Naufal and the clan of Abdashams refused and they sided with everyone else. But the important thing is, in all of these clans, the whole clan stuck together. At that time, the only two clans to remain together were the clan of Muttalib and the clan of Hashim. In all of that, you won't believe what Abu Lahab did. Abu Lahab, being a family member, Being a brother of Abu Talib, being one of the clan of Banu Hashim, being a senior to the extent that when Abu Talib died a few years later, who took over the leadership of the clan of Hashim, none other than Abu Lahab himself. In that environment, in that climate, Abu Lahab publicly walked out of Banu Hashim and joined Banu Abd al-Shams and the rest of the Quraysh. And he actually went over to them and said, I boycott Muhammad and my whole clan. And he actually went to the extent of saying, by doing so, by abandoning my clan and joining the rest of the Quraysh, have I not this day defended and supported the goddesses Lat and uzza And they said, yes you have. And he was honored by the rest of Quraysh for dishonoring the Prophet وسلم. He was honored and elevated because he made an enemy of the Prophet continue to do so. Amazingly, uh, most of uh, the clan of Muttalib and, the clan of, and many of the clan of Hashim were still pagans. But because of that kin, clan, and blood, they still supported the Prophet ﷺ, not in his beliefs, but at least they protected him. Abu Lahab renounced his protection. Of the Prophet ﷺ. And this continued for long thereafter When he became the leader of Banu Hashim He decided he will no longer give protection to the Prophet Sallallahu The Muslims in Banu Hashim continued to support but the others didn't They said well if our chief and leader renounces the protection then we can't do anything That's why the Prophet ﷺ had to travel to Ta'if To seek the protection of the tribe of Thaqif and and he visited others also. Abu Lahab's enmity and opposition continued for many, many years. He lived until just shortly after the Battle of Badr. When in the Battle of Badr, he, he didn't actually take part. But he sent someone else instead. Someone lost a bet with him. So he owed him money. So he said, if you want to repay your debt, you go on my behalf to fight in the Battle of Badr. And Abu Lahab uh, decided to remain behind in Mecca. When news reached him of the defeat of the Quraysh and the falling of so many of his fellow chieftains in the Battle of Badr, he was seized by grief to such an extent that seven days after the Battle of Badr, he actually died. But before he died, he boils broke out all over his body. And the Arabs they had a special name for this particular disease. And they feared this disease of boils breaking out over the, all over the body as much as they feared the plague. So Abu Lahab, who was actually very handsome, very rich, wealthy, he was honoured. When boils broke out all over his body, Abu Lahab, they abandoned him. And he died in misery and loneliness. In fact... His body remained inside the house, decomposing for three days. Nobody approached him out of fear of contagion. And then after three days, fearing spread of further disease, they actually took his body using poles (coughs) and they dug a pit and flung his body into the pit and then buried him in that manner by throwing rocks and stones over him. Indeed, that's how he perished. It wasn't just this kind of opposition. He hurt the Prophet ﷺ in his family. Abu Lahab being the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ, he had a number of sons and daughters. He had three sons in total. One was called Utaybah. Utbah was the older one. Utbah, Utaybah, and Muaddib. Utbah, the eldest son, he was actually betrothed to the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam's daughter Ruqiyah radhiyallahu anha, so Ruqiyah radhiyallahu anha was married to Uthba, and the younger daughter Um Kulthum radhiyallahu anha of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam was married to Abu Lahab's second son Utaiba. So Uthba and Utaiba were both married to the Two daughters of the Prophet ﷺ, and Umm Kulthum. So in, in essence, the two daughters had married their father's first cousins. Because Utbah and Utbah were the cousin brothers of the Prophet Now, although the marriage had taken place, the marriages hadn't been consummated. But the marriages had taken place. When the Prophet sallallahu announced uh, his prophethood, and uh, not just announced his prophethood, but later when Abu Lahab began his opposition, especially after a couple of years uh, into in prophethood, Abu Lahab and his wife, Ummu Jamil, both summoned their two sons, Utbah and Utaybah. And they said to them, We demand that you divorce the two daughters of Muhammad. And the Prophet ﷺ, when he realized how things were, he himself told his daughters to request a divorce from their husbands. So Utbah divorced Ruqiyah radiallahu anha. And Ruqiyah radiallahu anha was then married by the Prophet ﷺ to Uthman radiallahu An. And Uthman radiallahu an and Ruqiyah radiallahu anha were one of the first people who emigrated in the 45th year of the Prophet sallallahu life and the 5th year of prophethood to Abyssinia in that blessed hijrah. Both husband and wife went together. The second son, Utaybah, he was a bit more violent. Uh, be careful, Utbah radiallahu anha, the older son, he actually embraced Islam later in the 8th year of hijrah, at the conquest of Makkah. And so did the third son, Mu'attib. So Mu'attib and Utbah, عنهما, are both companions of the Prophet And they both embraced Islam, and they fought alongside the Prophet in the Battle of Hunain in the eighth year of Hijrah. And not only that, but if you recall a couple of weeks ago when we discussed the Battle of Hunain in the commentary of Sahih al-Bukhari, I mentioned that... Uh, There are only two battles, again, the Qur'an is unique. Despite the so many battles, only two battles are mentioned by name in the Qur'an. Badr and Hunayn. So in Hunayn, where Allah reminds the believers of how despite their huge numbers, they initially suffered a setback. As part of that setback, everyone dispersed and fled to the rear and retreated, only a few people remained around the Prophet wasallam. And subhanAllah, of those few people who remained with the Prophet wasallam, steadfast were the two sons of Abu Lahab, Utba and Mu'Addib. So be very careful, one, one shouldn't speak without knowledge, especially about uh, uh, topics as sensitive as this. Or the second son, who was married to Umm Kulthum, he was a bit more belligerent and violent. And he followed in his father's footsteps. So when his father said to him and mother that divorce uh, Umm Kulthum, the second daughter of the Prophet, meaning the third daughter, uh, Zaynab was the eldest, then Ruqayyah, then Umm Kulthum, but the second of the two daughters in the marriage, uh, in their household, Mutaiba said, "Of course, I will divorce her." But he didn't just do that. He went to the Prophet sallallahu and he declared to the Prophet sallallahu that, "O oh Muhammad, I disbelieve in your revelation. I disbelieve in what you say." And then he quoted one إِذَا هُوَى that I believe. Uh, I disbelieve in one إِذَا هُوَى and I disbelieve in. Uh, I disbelieve in him, i.e. the angel Jib, uh, Jibreel, and I disbelieve in your revelation. And then he said, I'm going to divorce your daughter, Umm Kulthum. And then he spat on the Prophet wasallam. and according to one report, he actually attacked the Prophet wasallam, ripping his shirt. So the Prophet ﷺ then prayed, Allahumma oh sallit alayhi kalbam min kilabik, O Allah, empower a dog of your dogs over him. Shortly thereafter, he divorced, divorced Ummukulthum, but shortly thereafter, Utaiba, along with his father, um, Abu Lahab, traveled north to the region of Syria. For Sham, not Syria, but Sham, for trade, as was famous, they would travel up north and south for their trade. So they traveled from Mecca, passing by Medina. That was their route, their trade route, all the way up to the uh, cities of uh, Gaza, uh, Bostra, uh, known as Bussara, in English, Bostra, uh, Gaza, and Damascus. And another, uh, so Abu Lahab and his son Udayba traveled up north. For trade, and they went as part of a large caravan, they were camped at Zarqa, which is in modern-day Jordan. You probably heard the name Zarqa. They were camped in that region in Zarqa. A monk, when he saw their camp, he said to them that, "O oh Arabs, why are you camped here? Don't you know this is uh, a region uh, inhabited by lions. They roam here just like goats and sheep run." So the Arabs, fearing for themselves, they broke camp, and uh, the monk invited them to the monastery. So Abu Lahab actually said to everyone, look, I fear my nephew's curse on my son. So everyone gather and go inside the monastery. So they all came inside the monastery. And when they rested at night, what they did is that they used all their luggage from the caravan of camels. And they built a border and a fence around their sleeping quarters inside the monastery. So they laid up the baggage and the luggage quite high. And then in between, they placed Roteiba right in the middle. And he was surrounded by the rest of the uh, Arabs in the huge caravan. And the sleeping travellers were all surrounded by their luggage And baggage packed up quite high as a fence. At night, a lion came. Jumped over the luggage and the fence. Smelt all the different Arabs. And he actually approached Utaiba. And ripping him, carried him away and tore him to pieces. Abu Lahab said, I told you I feared my nephew's curse for my son. So Utaiba was the one who was married to Umm Kulthum and who was ripped to pieces by a lion because of the dua of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Allahumma sallit alayhi min kilabik O oh Allah, empower a dog of your dogs over Utaiba. But Utaiba's older brother Utbah and... Utaybah's younger brother Mu'attib, these two, Utbah and Mu'attib, Radiallahu were actual companions of the Prophet Wasallam, who embraced Islam, and then stood steadfast with the Messenger Wasallam. These were just some of the reasons for the opposition of Abu Lahab. And the thing is, he had many enemies, the Prophet Wasallam, but Abu Lahab, was his blood uncle. He was his father's blood brother. Half brother, but still blood. It fell upon Abu Lahab. Even if he didn't believe, like so many of the others in the clan of Hashim, to at least protect and defend the Prophet wasallam. Instead, he broke his daughter's marriages. He forcibly had his daughter's divorced. He pelted him with stones. He cursed him publicly. He would follow him hurling pebbles at him and declaring him a madman and a soothsayer and one who could not be treated or cured of his madness. And Um Umma Jamil, his wife, she would actually lay thorns in the path of Rasulullah, and she was also responsible for much opposition, fully supporting her husband. These were just some of the reasons for that family, opposing Rasulullah ﷺ, the father and the mother, and one son, Utaybah. However, because of that, Allah publicly shamed him, and Allah named him in the Qur'an, as opposed to any of the other enemies of the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. This is just some of the background to the uh, revelation of the Surah of Abu Lahab. Now, uh, one or two further things. Let me translate the surah again. Uh, lahab Perish the hands of Abu Lahab. And he is perished. Ma aghna anhu maruhu wa ma kasab, His wealth will not save him, will not avail him, And nor what he has acquired. What's the meaning of that? Abu Lahab, when he heard that the Prophet ﷺ threatened him with Allah's punishment, Abu Lahab actually declared, because he was very wealthy, noble, Honoured, respected by everyone, a powerful figure, he actually said If Muhammad's words are true, if my nephew's words are true, then I will ensure that I will pay sufficient compensation with my wealth and I will save myself from the punishment of Muhammad's God through my children and my power and wealth. So Allah said Ma'ina Anhumahua his wealth and what he has acquired, meaning his children will not avail him. Naran he will soon enter. Not enter but roast. Yeslah so actually means to roast. So Sayyasla he will soon roast in a fire of flames. He and his wife. And the the flame is a play on his name, Abu Lahab, the father of the flame, Hammalat al Now what's the meaning and the significance of the final section? Why does Allah refer to his wife as a wood carrier with uh, a strap of palm fiber around her neck vg the she wasn 't actually a wood carrier because she was rich, she was wealthy, she was powerful, and she was one of the noble women of the Quraysh. from the clan She herself was Abu Sufyan 's sister, so she was from the clan of Umayyah, uh, and further up from the clan of Shams. So she, she was one of the noble women of the Quraysh. She wasn't a wood carrier, but she was responsible for one thing. She would strewn thorns and wood in the path of the Prophet sallallahu And being And ha- her husband being from Banu Hashim, she was one of the immediate neighbors of the Prophet sallallahu But she would inconvenience him all the time. But another thing she was responsible for is that she was a tail carrier, a bearer of tails. Listening to something here, planting it there. Listening, hearing something here, conveying it there. So she was hammalatul hatab in the sense that just like wood is carried, and wood ignites very quickly, you kindle and stoke a fire with dry wood. And hatab, the Arabs would say Hamalatul hatab, or hammalul hatab, they would actually refer to gossip, calumny, uh, hearsay and slander as hatab. As firewood, because just as firewood can ignite and burn a lot, we may not understand it in this climate, especially after yesterday's rain. But um, in dry climates, in the bush, in the deserts, even now in Colorado, uh, thousands of square miles uh, uh, are raging with fire. In Australia, in the savanna, in Africa, regularly thousands of hundreds and thousands of square miles. Uh, burn without consuming everything in their path, uh, simply because of crackling dry wood and dry grass. So the Prophet himself has used this word hatab in various places. In fact, in the context of envy, uh, that envy consumes good deeds just as fire consumes dry wood. So. Hatab, the Arabs would use hatab, i.e. firewood or drywood, to refer to slander, calumny, and hearsay, and gossip. Meaning gossip, hearsay, etc. are not innocent. They are very dangerous. And they ignite fitna, strife, discord, and disunity, and disharmony in families and communities with the speed And the ferocity of fire. So, Ummu Jamil, Abu Lahab's wife, would do the same. She was a famous tail carrier, tail bearer. Always hearing something from here, planting it there, listening to something here, sowing it there, conveying it here, conveying it there. And the Prophet has warned us against namima, gossip and hearsay. We may think of it as being very innocent in a hadith later by Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim. The Sahaba, الله, Abdullah ibn Abbas, عنه, says, We were walking with the Prophet when suddenly uh, the Prophet heard. The sound of two humans being punished in their graves. So the Prophet ﷺ proceeded to the graves, and whilst we were standing over the graves, he pointed at them and he said, ma "Indeed, these two occupants of the graves are being punished, and they are not being punished for something major." <clears throat> al As for one of them, he would carry tales of gossip and hearsay. And as for the other, he wouldn't protect himself from the splashes and the effects of urine. So, why did he say they weren't being punished for something great? The reason is, indeed, these two sins are great. That's why there was this punishment, which the Prophet wasallam himself heard. But they aren't considered great but normally by people. We consider them to be trivial and inconsequential and insignificant. But the Prophet ﷺ said they are both being punished and they are not being punished for something major, i. e. major in everyone's view. But in reality these two sins are grave, and the two sins were one, failure to protect oneself from the effects of urine. But the first one, Prophet ﷺ said, and bin Namima, who would carry tales. Gossip, hearsay. And that's why in a hadith in the introduction of Sahih Muslim, the Prophet says, It is sufficient for a man to be a liar that he relates and conveys everything that he hears. For a person to be a liar, he doesn't have to intentionally lie. If his habit is simply to repeat everything he hears, he will eventually be a liar. Because in any given day, we hear a hundred things. Uh, Twenty of them are, thirty of them are true, thirty of them are misleading and exaggerations, and forty of them are outright lies. So if we end up repeating everything we hear, we will end up repeating and conveying and relaying to others truths, half truths, exaggerations, and outright lies. And in the words of the Prophet sallallahu that is sufficient for a person to be deemed a liar. And in another hadith related by a Muslim in his sahih, Prophet sallallahu said, La And in one narration, نمام, a tail carrier will not enter jannah. So <laughs> Hammaratul Hatab, Abu Lahab's wife, Umm Jameel, this is one thing she would do. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes her position in the dunya. With what will happen in the hereafter. Furthermore, because they would abuse the Prophet wasallam, Allah satirizes them. The Arabs were very conscious of image, as everyone is. But you see, there was no media at the time of the uh, Arabs. Their media was poetry. And poetry stung. Through poetry they would elevate people. And through poetry they would debase people. ...and humiliate them. They would eulogise or satirise. They would uh, elevate or lampoon. And forgive me for drawing a comparison... ...but uh, many don't seem to understand this... ...unless you compare it to rap. See, how rap, rappers... ...they use rap for competition... ...for honour, for dignity... ...for uh, declaring their prowess... ...for boasting, for their pride... ...and as well as to diss others... So this dissing, this disparaging, this lampooning and satirizing, the Arabs would do it through poetry. But there's no comparison between rapping and poetry. The Arabs were born poets. Their children could spontaneously, impromptu, rattle off couplets, 60-70 couplets, each one of them with a perfect rhythm and rhyme. And that's how they were. So if you look at the Surah of Abu Lahab, another thing. Umm Jamil the wife of Abu Lahab she was a poetess she was a poet Abu Lahab was a poet in fact Imam Shabi one of the tabi'in he says that not just the clan of Hashim remember what i told you who was a great grandfather Abd Manaf Abd Manaf had sons Hashim Naufal Muttalib and Abd Shams Imam Shabi says out of all the descendants of Abdu Manaf, including all the descendants of Hashim, all the descendants of naufal all the descendants of Muttalib, and all the descendants of Abd shams which included Abu Sufyan, his father Sakhar, Umayyah, Rabi'ah, Hind, uh, which included Ummu Jamil, the, uh, Abu Lahab's wife. Basically, all the descendants of Abdu Manaf, every single one of them was a poet, except one. The Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa With the exception of the Prophet sallallahu every single Arab member from these clans and descendants of Abd manaf were all poets, natural poets, with the exception of one. As Allah says, وَمَا عَلَّمْنَاهُ الشْعِرَ وَمَا يَنْبَغِيلَهُ And we have not taught him, i.e. the Prophet's poetry. And nor does it befit him. Nay, this, i.e. the Qur'an, is an, ad, uh, is an admonition from Allah. And a clear Qur'an. So Abu Lahab's wife, Ummu Jameel, she was a poetess. And she would like to satirize the Prophet wasallam in verse and in rhythm. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala surah answered her. "Tabbat tab. so, so when she heard this, she was shaken. She came straight to the Prophet looking for him, carrying stones in her hand to pelt him with. That Muhammad dares to satirize me. Indeed, these words shook her. So when she arrived, this was in Mecca, uh, Abu Bakr was sitting there next to the Prophet. So Abu Bakr saw Ummu Jamil coming, <coughs> angry. ...rushing towards them with stones in her hand. Abu Bakr said, ''O Messenger of Allah, it would be wise if you moved aside.'' So the Prophet said, ''Don't worry, she won't be able to see me.'' Indeed, she came and stood right in front of the Prophet and Umm Jamil said to Abu Bakr, "Where ''Where is your companion Muhammad?'' ''He dares to satirize me, how dare he lampoon me with these verses?'' I have heard that this is what he says, and then she recited Surah al So then she went off. The Prophet told Abu Bakr, I told you Allah will allow me to be hidden from her at this time. So she was a carrier and a bearer of tales. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted to show her in the most in the worst light possible. And on that occasion she said to Abu Bakr رضي الله عنه. Oh uh, uh, oh Ibn Abi Qahafa, your companion (coughs) Muhammad says of me that I'm a wood carrier. The whole of the Quraysh knows that I'm one of their noble women. I'm no wood carrier. So she wasn't a wood carrier, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is merely describing her as a wood carrier with a halter and a strap around her neck full of wood. Wood of what? Firewood of calumny, allegations, hearsay and gossip. But in the Akhirah she will have a strap of iron around her. And she will feed wood into the fire that will stoke and ignite the fire further beneath Abu Lahab. This brings us to the end of the surah Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enable us to understand. May Allah make us amongst those who understand the meaning and the message of the holy Qur'an. One very important message from this surah is that in a hadith laid by Imam Muslim, in his sahih, Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa says, وَمَن بَطَّأَ بِهِ عَمَلُهُ لَمْ يُسْرِعِ بِهِ نسبه." And whoever's deeds keep them behind, their lineage will not propel them forward. i.e. with Allah. What matters is not who you are, or what you do. Even if you are related to a messenger of Allah. And on the other hand, this also shows that no one is to be held responsible for anyone else's behavior. Good or bad, throughout the Qur'an, have we not seen? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-Tahreem, Allah gives the examples of two wives. The wife of the Prophet Lut and the wife of the Prophet Nuh. Even though they were in the household, in the marriages, and in the family of two of Allah's most pious servants. When they disbelieved in Allah and, in, and they were guilty of gross misdeeds, and they... Uh, did not support their uh, prophet's husbands. The fact that their husbands were the prophets of Allah, Allah says, يُغْنِيَ اللَّهِ شيء. These two, i.e. نُوحًا Lut, عَلَيْهِم والسلام, did not save their wives or protect them or avail them in any way with Allah. And it was said to both of them, the wives of Lut and Nuh, enter the fire. Similarly with Abu Lahab, the fact that he was the uncle and the blood of Rasulullah did not save him. On the other hand, no one is responsible for anyone else's behavior. Did not Nuh الصلاة, have a son whom Allah, and a wife whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala declared to be uh, unfit to be members of the family? Did not Asiya anha have Fir'aun as a husband? No one can blame Asiya رضي الله or hold her to account for what her husband did, even though he was Pharaoh. Did not Ibrahim عليه السلام have his father Azar? And so on. What the Qur'an tells us clearly, and what the hadith tell us clearly, is that no one is responsible for anyone else's behavior. And no one can benefit from anyone else's behavior, not in the broad sense, of course, we all benefit from each other's behavior. But in terms of salvation, if our deeds mean damnation, then our lineage or blood or relationship with someone will not simply mean salvation. Unless Allah grants shafa'a and permission to intercede, which is a different matter. But as the Prophet sallallahu said very clearly, مَنْ بَطَّأْ بِهِ عَمَلُوا هُمْ بِهِ deeds keep him back, his lineage will not take him forward. And that's one other important lesson from this surah. But of all his enemies, the only person to be mentioned by name is actually his uncle. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enable us to understand. عَلَىٰ عَبْدِهِ وَرَسُولِ نَبِيِّنَا مُحَمَّدِ وَعَلَىٰ آلِهِ وَسَحْبِهِ this lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadul Haq and has been brought to you by Alkotha Productions. For additional lectures and products, please visit www.akstore.com. We can also be contacted by phone on 0044 or by email via sales at akstore.com. Produced under license by Alkotha Productions, all rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author. Any unauthorised distribution, broadcasting or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright.